This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey fighting for justice, and learning along the way. This week, my guest is June Sarpong. June has been a TV host in the UK for over 20 years and is now serving as the first ever Director of Creative Diversity for the BBC. June is a passionate advocate for inclusion and has just released her fourth book, The Power of Privilege, How White People Can Challenge Racism. She is an internationally renowned broadcaster, writer, and campaigner on diversity issues, which you'll hear more about in our chat. Hi, I'm June Sarpong. I'm a broadcaster, author, and also uh, the current director of Creative Diversity for the BBC. Welcome, June. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I mean, there's definitely a lot more you could have said that you are, but <laughs> you, you know, we'll we'll let people hear that over the course of the podcast. Oh, bless you. <laughs> it's so nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. And the first question I actually want to ask you is one that I ask everyone. Mm. And it's from my mother. And she said, you know, that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I want to ask you, what is missing from your resume that you think people should know about you? Oh, wow. What a wonderful question. And it's true, actually, because maybe this is one of the things, hopefully, that will come out of everything that we're experiencing globally with the COVID crisis, maybe we'll start defining ourselves differently, not through our work, sadly, because many of us perhaps won't have work in the same way. Um, and also because the way we work has changed so dramatically and we are having more time to focus on friends and family and, and, and you know, even if we can't see as many of them as we'd like. Um, mm -hmm we're at least checking in way more than we were before. So I wonder if we will change the way we introduce ourselves. So in terms of what's missing, um, I would say uh, I am a woman. I'm a black woman. Um, I am uh, a daughter. Uh, I am a sister. Um, I'm a good friend i would hope um and also i'm a lot of fun i think yeah that's what's missing <laughs> a lot of fun okay. i mean i have heard so so i'll i'll go along with it i think you're right um you know i so i share the experience with you of being a child of first generation african immigrants you know yeah. you said you're a daughter mm. and and how do you think that experience has influenced your worldview and and the path that your life has taken Oh, I think it's it's everything. You know, I, I'm so proud of my African heritage and, you know, I'm second generation and so have a very close link uh, to my parents' country of origin, which is Ghana. Um, I speak the language. I go back often. Um, and I was really lucky growing up in the UK. I grew up in East London where there was 
quite a big Ghanaian uh, community. So I never really felt like an outsider. And also we were raised in a predominantly white working class community, but we were welcomed um, by uh, the, the, the local residents. And so for me, my culture is something that I've always been incredibly proud of and 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 lead with. And I think it's actually an int- particularly in the kind of spaces and we were talking off mic, you know, about being in spaces where you're the only one, mm-hmm. particularly when you're in spaces like that, the majority of your time, I think it's important to have a strong sense of self and identity because you bring that point of difference to places where it's really needed. Um what was your reaction to your MBE in 2007? And let us not forget your OBE this year. Congrats, <laughs> congrats to you. Thank you. Um, um, yeah. have, have, receiving these honors, has it changed how people perceive you? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I don't know is the answer to that. I think maybe the MBE did more because I was very young when I got that one. Um, and so it was a super big deal um, because... I was so young um, and, you know, for, again, back to the whole immigrant parent piece, you know, for them, yeah, it's just kind of, it's that stuff that really matters, it's really for, for your parents more than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the stuff that really matters to them and the kind of thing that they can sort of brag about to their friends. So <laughs> absolutely, I suppose, I suppose it changed my standing in the, in the uh, eyes of sort of older Ghanaians. <laughs> I get that. I totally get that. And like the eyes of the aunties. Yes, in the eyes of the aunties and the ambassador uncles. Yes, it uh-huh. changed my standing. <laughs> and then did it did it change how you think of yourself? No, or? not no. at all. No, 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 no. None of that stuff does. And actually that's that's one of the things if if there was something that I would sort of commend myself on, it is the you know, I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't use that kind of stuff to define me because, you know, it could easily be gone. And then who are you? So, yeah, no. Right. You're not, you're not out here doing this work for this. It's, no, yeah. no, no, not at all. I understand. Well, also, recently you took over Victoria Beckham's Instagram for the, the Mike campaign. I did. Yes. Very casual, must I say. <laughs> yeah, it was so much fun. And I mean, I loved that skirt that you were wearing. Well, it was Victoria Beckham. It was beautiful. But, you know, in, in this campaign, and I, I tuned in on Instagram throughout the day, you shared 10 actions with people to help dismantle systemic racism. Yeah. And how do you think people interacted with the campaign? Did you, you know, what sort of feedback did you get from it? Oh, overwhelmingly positive. You know, I think, I do think that on this issue, um, very much so, I think particularly since the tragic senseless killing of George Floyd and the, the outpouring of outrage, um, uh, and, and, and also the reckoning that's happening as a result of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of white people are asking themselves, how they can be effective allies and how actually the sort of luxury of privilege can make you inadvertently complicit to a system that's unfair. I mean, I don't need to explain that to you with, with um, your family's history. So I think this is, this is a place where now I think there are mass numbers of um, white people, perhaps for the first time in the West, asking themselves these questions. You know, the movements that have been before 
it's often been a small minority that have been on board and have been allies. And and I think what we're getting now is regular people who really go about their everyday lives living in very homogenous communities that never really give racism a second thought are now asking questions. And so so for, so because of that, I'm I'm actually quite hopeful to be honest. Oh, okay. Well if you're hopeful, I'll, I'll hopefully you can share some of that with me. <laughs> I'm feeling quite quite tired right now. I'll try, I'll try. There's a lot to be tired about, (laughs) my God, yes. (laughs) So, you know, if I were to say to you that we could get 100% buy-in from everyone with those actions, but only for three out of the 10, are there three that you would say these are what we definitely need to start with? Yes, Um, I think the three would definitely be uh, the first one, which is uh, achieving awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is absolutely crucial because often people are ignorant. They don't, you know, unless you're seeing overt racism played out in front of your eyes, you know, how many people actually understand the more covert um insidious stuff which is actually sometimes even more damaging um and so i think there's a real ignorance around uh issues to do with um racial injustice so i think achieving awareness for sure has to be the first one that people do um i think the second uh is probably again number two out of the action steps which is make a small step with a big footprint. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm only such and such. What can I do? There's not much I can do in this. And, you know, this has nothing to do with me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that actually sometimes something that you think is really small can make such a big difference. You know, I often say if you are somebody that lives near a local school, particularly in the UK where we we don't have the same sort of economic um, separation in terms of um, housing the way the rest of the world does. Because of our social housing, you will, it's easy to have uh, social housing in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the, in London, let's say. Right. That's, that's normal. Very rare you would have that in the United States. And because of that, it means the two worlds collide, whether it's in the local shop, uh, you know, the local greengrocers or whatever, even if they're not interacting in the way they should, there is proximity. And so it's hard not to see any kind of poverty around you in the UK, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Mm. And so what I would say is, even if it's just volunteering at the local state school, that can make a huge difference to somebody's life. You know, if you have corporate links, make sure your company is doing an outreach program. You know, these are the sorts of things, little things that people can do to make a difference. Um, And then obviously, you know, if you're educating yourself the way that you should be, hopefully you will, you know, be somebody that really is an agent of change. And then I think the third one would be action eight, which be an ally, inspire more allies. You know, once you're doing what you need to do, hopefully that will inspire more people like yourself to do the same. So, yeah, that's what I would say, the top three. (laughs) I mean, let's get get people to work. It's hello. you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned about people saying, well, it's not, you know, my problem, it doesn't affect me. And it, that 
it's just so confusing to hear that because black people did not create race and racism. So no. I just am sort of like flabbergasted every time I hear that from someone who is white. Yes. And I think this is back to my point about the luxury of ignorance. You know, systemic racism has been designed in such a way that white people don't have to think about it. So you can say it's not my problem because the way it's designed is designed that the default is everything that's white. Normal is white and anything that isn't is abnormal. So, mm -hmm. of course, you can you know, live in a state of ignorance because that is where West, the starting point is you. And, and so I do think we do have to understand that so that our approach in how we encourage those with the most agency in society to educate themselves effectively um, takes that into account. I think we're able to have much more results when we, when we do. Um, yeah. You know, I've I've congratulated you, I think, like three times now on all these accomplishments. And so looking at your biography, one may think that like you would never have time for leisure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I definitely think so. So I'm wondering what is an activity that sort of like serves as relaxation for you? Yeah, cooking. You know, I love food. I'm a big eater and a big cooker. Um, so yeah, love, 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 love cooking. Um, I, it's it's therapeutic for me. It's relaxing, and really enjoyable. <laughs> and what would you what would you say is your favorite thing to cook? Uh, probably jollof rice. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, probably Ghanaian jollof rice. Um, you know, I'm always in a battle with my um, Nigerian friends over whose is best, but I still think Ghanaian jollof is the best jollof. Well, and I would say Ivorian is a close second. <laughs> oh, that you know, the funny thing is, my first guess was um, Cuppy, the DJ in the UK, who, who is Nigerian, and, and just yeah. and released that song "Jollof on the Jet," and. <laughs> I think I think she said on the podcast that she obviously thinks Nigerian is the best. Well, she would, but <laughs> I definitely prefer ours. That is so funny that you said that. Well, good to know. So I will be asking you for some jollof pretty soon. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> um, I also wonder if there's sort of, you know, a, a quote or a phrase or sort of faith that sustains you in difficult moments? Oh, oh, what a nice, nice question. Um, uh, I, I, I like this too shall pass. I think that's a good one. And I think it's true, actually. I think if we, if we all understood that, we'd live our lives completely different because good or bad, nothing lasts forever, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're having a good moment, really appreciate that because it's not always going to be that way. And when you're having a bad phase in life, know that that is too going to one day end. It's not going to stay that way forever. And I think if we can know that everything is ephemeral, then, you know, you are, I just think the way we live our lives would be completely different. I mean, you're clearly committed to changing society for the better through educating and challenging people. How how would you say that you do this? Um, well, I think a few ways. Well, I'm obviously through my books, mm -hmm. um, but now a lot of um, my work, aside from my BBC work, um, is really going into companies and organizations um, 
and uh, helping them uh, with issues around diversity and inclusion and also facilitating difficult conversations. Um, And I think the world of work is really, I believe, where we can get a lot of this stuff right in the sense that Everything else in your life, particularly if you have means, um, you know, if you have means, you can choose where you live. You can choose where you send your children um, to school. Um, You can choose so many things about your life if you're fortunate enough to have the means. However, unless you own the company or you are incredibly senior within the company, you don't really get to choose who you work with. Mm. And so I think that because the world of work is the one, probably the one place other than an Apple store where you're bringing <laughs> so many different people from different walks of life together. Um, and, you know, in this case, they also have a common goal, which is to you know complete a task or you know, help grow a business, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that actually if we can use the world of work to iron out a lot of these issues, no question that will impact the way we are socially and, and also what we expect from our policymakers. Right. And I mean, the COVID has thrown us into just a, a, a tizzy and a loop. Um, yeah. And so, you know, this this virus has taken over our lives. But I think another virus that we're still dealing with is intolerance. And I know that you have powerful arguments against intolerance. So could mm. you share some of them with my listeners? Of course. Um, yeah, I think that uh, intolerance is very much a, a, a tragic and a deadly virus that has caused so much pain and suffering in society. Um throughout history. Um, And I do think that every generation has to ask itself what it's doing to help address this issue and hopefully move things forward um, in the right direction. And so in terms of what we can all do, I do think it's really important to be aware of what your biases are. Mm -hmm. We all have, you know, we've all been conditioned and obviously, we've been talking about uh, systemic racism and, and the role white people have to play in dismantling it. But this sort of idea of superiority and this hierarchical system that we have in society, you know, I call it the hierarchy of inclusion. And obviously, at the top of that, privileged white men. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of that are, are not privileged black women, perhaps. And But within that, there are so many, and then obviously if you get to intersectionality of disability and class and so on and so on and so on, uh, so many things that determine whether or not society thinks you are valuable. Mm-hmm. I think we all have to play our part in challenging those viewpoints and looking at how it plays out in our own lives because even those of us that come from discriminated groups and disenfranchised groups often are sometimes some of the worst perpetrators of this stuff because of um, the way our uh, psyches have been broken down uh, and and the levels of self-hatred and so on that, that, that is still prevalent in many diverse communities. So it's really important that we're not only just calling out the system, but we're also seeing if we are actually living out the system in our own choices. Mm. Well, yeah, it's I. I had um, 
someone from the World Bank on a few weeks ago and and she's the global disability advisor. And I was one of the things I asked her was, you know, we all have our blind spots and in this fight for justice. And I think one of mine is probably disability. So yeah. how yeah. what do you say to activists in general to also get them to look at disability rights? Yes. Um, and yeah, and I think that's such a great question, Mungi. And what I and I think that point actually feeds into what I often say to those from um, diverse backgrounds, particularly people of color mm -hmm. in this issue, in the sense that if you are non-disabled, there are so many things, and I'm talking sort of physical disability here, right. obviously, you know, this, whether it's cognitive or sensory, but I'm talking specifically about physical disability. If you are non-disabled, the world is designed for you. The world was designed for non-disabled people. And so there are so many things that you don't even have to consider. And you would only consider it when somebody who is disabled raises the point and actually alerts you of the fact that, you know what, the way you just got on that bus and it was all so easy, that's not my experience. Absolutely. And I say that in the same when it also comes to race. If you are white, unless you're living in an exceptional circumstance and your life is exceptional there's not much reason for you to have to look at this stuff you can literally be completely oblivious to it and in a way that is how those with non-disabilities are where disability is concerned so what I say is of course there are varying levels of how this horrific type of exclusion plays out and obviously often black people are at the the worst end of it mm -hmm. but we all have these biases in some shape or form and it's just about being aware of what yours are and then challenging them and so even if it's you looking around your team how many people would ever look around their team and say to their line manager why don't we have any people with disabilities on this team 20 percent of the 15 to 20% of the world's population has a disability. How are we a company with none, with no one in here? So, but you, chances are you wouldn't even consider it. No. And so these are the sorts of things that I would hope. Often we think about what our own problems are, but actually what we need to do is think about the wider issues. And I do believe then how you even impact your own and how you look at your own place in society in itself changes. Absolutely. You, you know, you also wrote a book called The Power of Women. Yes. Very, love very much appreciate that. Um, <laughs> and it debunks myths around feminism. So mm. are there three myths that you would say are the most important to debunk for people? Yeah, well, I think the main one actually is just ensuring that people understand what it means to be a feminist. And that is somebody that is an advocate for gender equality. It's mm -hmm. simple as that. And actually, when you put it like that, most people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I believe men and women should be treated the same, et cetera, et cetera. However, there's a lot of sort of negative connotations around the word feminism for all sorts of reasons. And I think really that's a result of sort of some of the things that came 
through uh, second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very different to first wave feminism. And, and I think that because perhaps the perception of the narrative was that it was anti-men, there was a sort of contingent of obviously men who were fearful whenever they hear that word, but also women who themselves feel that they don't identify with it. And also because feminism by and large has been seen through the white gaze, the gaze of white women, again, I think there are a lot of women of colour who also feel that they don't um, relate to the sort of predominant view of what feminism is. But actually, if you look at what the meaning of the word is, I think most of us uh, would agree that that is surely where we should all be trying to get to. Right. Instead of this, you know, scary mm. boogie man that we sort of made yeah. it out to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had a friend when I was in high school who said, you know, she she didn't like my feminism because she she didn't want to have to work when she was older. And I was like, well, I don't think me wanting to work affects you not working. Yeah, I, I don't understand her point. <laughs> I, I didn't well, either. <laughs> You're happy to work. You're talking about you, not her. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then, you know, who have been the people who have inspired you? Um, I think I've been lucky. I mean, a lot of the people inspire who inspire me, I actually know, which helps. Um, and then obviously the ones that I don't know, who I've read a lot about, <laughs> which also helps. Um, but yeah, I've got some great friends who are role models of mine, people like um, Baroness Amos, who I think you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's another wonderful woman called Baroness McDonough, uh, who's a very prominent woman in politics over here. Um, yeah, I'm lucky. And then the women in my family, you know, Ghanaian culture is a matriarchal culture. Um, and so I was lucky to be raised by strong women, unapologetically strong women, um, who really were confident in who they were as women and, and liked being women. That's the other thing. Um, so, yeah. And then what would you say is the best piece of advice you've received in your life? Best piece of advice I've received in my life uh, is probably uh, from uh, Baroness McDonough. Uh, you know, she's she's one of those, she's unflappable. One of those people that just ne- is never flustered. I don't know how, but she just never is. Um, and, you know, she's one of those that sort of believes that it works out in the end, you know? Mm. Even if you take a few detours and I think if you have that idea of that place that you you sort of, feel you will one day get to yeah one day you wake up and you're there do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like it works out in the end um and also the other thing as well the other brilliant piece of advice that I was given very early on I don't even know who gave it to me was it my dad I can't remember but it and I can't remember who told me but it was very early on and it stuck with me which was the decisions you make when you're young determine what your life will be like when you're old and actually I think it's so true we sort of give young people a false sense of um, reality in the sense that we sort of tell them oh it doesn't matter what you do when you're young and blah 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 which to a degree can be true right but there are decisions you can make when you're young that determine the trajectory of your life good or bad and it's so unfair 
that you can make a decision at 15, 16, when you know nothing, and it can completely change the whole journey that you will go on and your whole experience as a human being. So I do think it's important to give young people the right balance of um, uh, sort of uh, freedom, as it were, to experiment and try things, but also responsibility to, to understand that it does matter and it, and it can be something that you end up having to deal with forever. So do think to still be responsible in the choices that you make and exercise a, a, a level of discernment. Like a good balance of nature versus nurture. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, with that, I'd love to know what your greatest fear for humanity is and, and you know, what kind of things you're doing to help that fear stop coming to pass. Well, I don't really have any fear for humanity per se in the sense that I think it's now up to us, isn't it? Whether it's climate change whether it's racial injustice, all the issues that we have, it's up to us. And if we don't get it right, we won't be here. And more fool us because we had a good, we had a good thing. Planet Earth is amazing. I mean, kudos to all of those that are doing their space travel and exploration, but I'm kind of good with this planet. <laughs> <laughs> You're like I'm fine here, grounded I'm on Earth. Here. I'm good. You know, sometimes I don't need to see what if the grass is greener on the other side. I'm happy with the grass we got on this planet. So, so my point is, we've been given so much. There's, there's this amazing guru. I don't know if you've heard of him, Satguru, the Indian guru, and he talks about the miracle of being alive. And imagine if, if, if we really took the time every day to think, my God, it's a one in a million, if that chance that I'm here, mm. that, you know, my parents met at the time they did, that, you know, this egg was fertilized at this time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, so many things have to happen in order for a human being to be born to exist. The fact that you even survived childhood, lucky enough to have people, caretakers, to get you through a period where you couldn't support yourself. Right. Miracle. Miracle. And the way that this body works, you know, your heart beats without you having to think about it. You're able to breathe unaided. And it's only when you lose those things that you're like, my goodness, how lucky was I to have had that? So I think mm -hmm. if you're healthy, even if you're going through a tough time, you're here. And the fact that you're here means at any time it can get better. And I think that if we mess this up, well, that's on us. So no, I don't have any fear for humanity. I, I, I just hope we, we don't act out our stupidity. <laughs> so, so my ne my next question was going to be, what is your greatest hope for humanity? That, <laughs> that we we don't act out our stupidity. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm on the same page as you there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then before I, you know, let you go, I want to know if there's a book you would recommend. I'm about to start reading Diversify that I see Ooh. that my grandfather, you know, endorsed on the back. Yes, yeah, so lovely of him, so, your grandfather. 
which is wonderful. I'm excited, but do you have another one that you'd recommend? Um, I think another book that I uh, would recommend, it's a book that I read probably mm, once or twice a year, Um, and it's just a lovely book. Uh, It's uh, called The Man Who Tapped the Secrets of the Universe, Mm. and it's by, is it Glenn Campbell? Not Glenn Campbell. Let me check his stay there. I'm going to go and get it. So I see his name is Glenn, Glenn something. Anyway, it's the most beautiful book. It's a tiny book. You can literally finish it in two hours. Mm-hmm. And it just talks about sort of universal law. And uh, a, a man in the 20s, it was written in, I think, 1929. Um, and it was about a philosopher, scientist, a man called Walter Russell, who had five extraordinarily different careers and somehow managed to get to the top of all of them. Um, And he really believed in the power of source and worked with source, as it were, and was a big meditator and and connected with sort of what he believed to be higher power. And it's a very simple, lovely book, actually, um, in terms of just sometimes remembering what matters in the end, really. Mm-hmm. So you said the, the man who tapped the secrets of the universe. And who tapped the secrets of the universe. Such a good book. Love it. And literally you finish it in two, in two hours. <laughs> well, thank you. Glenn Clark. Glenn Clark. Glenn with a double N. Glenn Park. Clark. Clark. Okay. Well, thank you so much, June, for coming and speaking with me on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.